and welcome to another edition of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. So, Joe, do you remember um, we had on one of the authors of that 3,000-page book called A History of Interest Rates? Ooh, yeah, that was a really uh, that was a really early episode and a really good one. Yeah, everyone should go back and listen to that one, by the way. Um, but I'm curious, did you ever actually read the book? Should we pause here and give people some time to go back and listen, and then and then like resume? <laughs> no, we're going to keep going. Answer my question: Did you actually read the book? No, <laughs> no, I want to, but it is huge. It, I mean, is it a massive? I mean, I'll, I'll read it one day, but no, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I haven't read it yet. Okay. Well, the secret is most of it is charts, um, but you should still read it because uh. it's really good. And when I read it, I thought one of the most interesting things in there was actually a history of interest rates. I guess that's obvious, but a history of moral attitudes towards interest rates. That is really interesting because we tend to think about, you know, just interest rates as being these things that are sort of mechanically set by conditions in the economy and so forth. Mm. But we know that at the edge of things, things like usury, payday loans, we do have uh, caps that we consider to be excessive on interest rates. And different cultures at different times have had different views on borrowing. Yeah. And different religions, too. Although actually, a lot of the most major religions have very, very unfavorable opinions of usury. So if you go back and read the Bible, for instance, I'm pretty sure there are some passages in there that basically tell you you shouldn't be putting any money in a bank. That's interesting. I should read that. We should find those passages. Okay. So I've I've just given you like a a week's worth of reading homework. Um, the, The reason I bring it up is because one of the religions that's probably most famous for having an unfavorable attitude towards charging interest, to put it mildly, is Islam. Uh, And there's a whole industry that's been created around that notion to basically allow people to invest in certain assets and to put their money in banks without charging interest and breaking a primary concept of Sharia law. Right. So from what I understand, and to be honest, I don't understand very much, but there are so the uh, Quran lays out, I believe, some rules about how uh, avoiding interest. So then there's an attempt to create financial instruments that avoid violating the Quran, but serve a similar purpose to sort of bonds and borrowing. That's right. And the reason we bring it up is because something really interesting actually happened in the world of Islamic finance just a couple weeks ago. And we're going to have someone on who's watch the development of Islamic finance over the past, I mean, almost a decade, really. And he's going to explain to us how this industry really grew and what the most recent event might mean for the industry. Let's do it. So our guest today is Frank Kane. He is senior business columnist for Arab News He's also a veteran business reporter at The National, and he's been in Dubai for a very, very long time. Dubai is, of course, a center of Islamic finance, and he's going to break it down for us. So, Frank, thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I've been here 10 years, by the way. (laughs) So, there we are. Yeah. Uh, Islamic finance has been here for considerably longer than 10 years, but uh, I think it's fair to say that it has taken off in the last uh, decade or so. 
uh, and especially since the global financial crisis 2009, uh, which, uh, as we all know, uh, began as an infection in the Western banking system, uh, asset-related uh, infection, uh, and which ended up bringing down, almost bringing down the world financial system. Uh, and of course, this also affected this part of the world very seriously. Uh, Dubai almost went bust. Uh, it was helped out by its brothers down in Abu Dhabi. But many uh, Islamic financial commentators after the global financial crisis pointed to the fact that uh, this was all the, the fault of conventional capitalism, of conventional finance, and that if there had been an Islamic financial system in place, it would not have happened. Because uh, Islamic finance uh, is less risky than uh, conventional finance. Uh, it is backed by real assets. You wouldn't have had very uh, high-risk, uh, low-quality assets that brought about the global financial crisis. Those, those couldn't have happened. You couldn't have borrowed against them. Um, so therefore, the idea was that uh, if the global industry took more notice of Islamic financial precepts, we'd be a lot safer. That was given a big boost in 2013 in Dubai in particular when His Highness Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid Al Maktoum, the ruler of Dubai, uh, declared the ambition of the emirate to be the uh, what he called the, the capital of the global Islamic economy. In the, in the three years since uh, His Highness declared this goal, uh, uh, Dubai has boomed as a center for the Islamic economy, and that's kind of where we are now. All right, well, let's take a step back uh, for an, a minute, because that was a really good overview of Dubai's ambitions in Islamic finance. But walk us through what the goal of Islamic finance actually is. Joe and I talked about it a little bit in the intro, but give us some more detail. Right, and sort of what I'm curious about is... To what extent is it about finding loopholes to create things that are not interest but sort of serve as interest-type payments? And to what extent is it a, are they about fundamentally different types of financial instruments? Okay. Well, uh, Joe, well, look, I, I mean, I must tell you straight up that I am not an Islamic scholar. Uh, I, I, I do not issue fatwas. If, if, if I could <laughs> issue fatwas, uh, I would not be a financial journalist on the pittance that I'm earning here. Um, so, uh, so uh, I, I mean, I will, I will give you my amateur's uh, view. And uh, it, it, it all goes down really to what is interest uh, in uh, conventional finance, uh, interest is the uh, the profit that money makes itself. That will not wash in an, an Islamic system because money cannot make a profit. Only assets can make a profit, and money is not regarded as a physical asset. So interest in, in, in Arabic is called riba, and it, and it is haram, it is forbidden. Um, but instead, it's, it's replaced by profit share, and there's nothing wrong with profit share. There's nothing wrong with sharing the, uh, uh, the fruits of labor, uh, or, or your sound management of an asset. There's nothing wrong with that, sharing that profit. So that's what, what uh, replaces it. But the, uh, the reason they're allowed to make such uh, uh, big claims for the, uh, 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 the risk-free nature and the ethical nature is that uh, assets have to be backed by, by sorry, uh, um, all, all profits have to be backed by real assets. There you know, has to be something uh, uh, behind them. So... That's why they're able to say that it's less risky. And, you know, I mean, uh, uh, there haven't been uh, 
uh, huge runs on uh, Islamic financial ins institutions in the past in the way that they have been on uh, Western institutions. So uh, to that degree, you know, maybe they have a point. Uh, there, there is also another point that, you know, it's well worth making. There are 1.4 billion Muslims in the world. And if you can appeal to them to uh, put their money into an Islamic financial institution rather than a Western uh, conventional institution, then th that is a very big market. So you can, you can make a lot of money out of it. And I, I think that marketing aspect of the whole concept of Islamic mm. finance is, is very important. But it, you know, it, it, it is a valid thing. It is an alternative way at looking at finance. Before we get to the recent story that's been in the news, I want to go back to something that you said uh, in the beginning of your answer when you said you're not an Islamic scholar, you're not in a position mm. to issue fatwas, and you're on the sort of measly salary as a journalist. Yes, I'd like to underline that, Joe, if I could. <laughs> I, you're, uh, I conclude from what you're saying then that within the uh, Islamic finance industry, there is a role for the people who are in position to declare that a specific instrument is Islamic finance compliant and that that seems like it must be a somewhat critical and therefore lucrative role in the whole thing. Yes, you're dead right. And that's a very good point to make. And that, in some ways, gets to the heart of the thing that we're going to talk about a bit later. Um, so the, uh, the people who actually make decisions are, are called scholars. They, uh, they are experts in Islam. Most of them uh, have a, a level of expertise in finance and accounting too. Uh, combine these together and you get an, an Islamic scholar. These people are very well paid indeed. There aren't that many of them. Um, around about 2013, there, there, there was an absolute rush around the world by Western banks who saw the potential uh, for Islamic finance, and they went hiring these, these guys on you know, big, big bucks. In many cases, there was just one man sitting in, a, in an office in Wall Street with a stamp uh, that was his, his fatwa stamp. That was his authority to declare that deal Islamic compliance, Sharia compliance. Um, but they made an awful lot of money. And uh, it was a, a very limited pool of people. Uh, and of course, you can see with, you know, with this sort of small number of people making decisions, they can each go their own way. Uh, there's, there's no unified structure to it, or, or rather that there are, there are too many structures to it. So, and, and that really, you know, is part of the problem, really. All right. Well, Frank, you've, you've led into the recent news event perfectly. Um, and what it is, let me try to break it down for our listeners who haven't been following uh, all the business news emanating from the Gulf region recently. There's an energy company called Danagas, and it's based here in the UAE. And uh, I think about five years ago or so, it issued 700 million worth of Sharia compliant debt, Sukuks. Um, now, since that time, the company's had a little bit of trouble getting payment from some people that owed it money, some uh, producers, I think, one of them was in Iraq, uh, and so it's had to restructure its debt. Now, a couple weeks ago, Dana basically announced that its Islamic bonds, these 700 million worth of debt that have been sold in 2013, were no longer Sharia compliant. They were illegal. And because of that, they would be redeeming them and swapping them for something else. And this spooked a lot of investors, to put it mildly. Right, Frank? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it did indeed, because 
uh, I mean, it's kind of unprecedented. I, I, I think there is one other case of a Sukut being declared haram, but it was a much smaller one, and it was a long time ago, and uh, it didn't involve the same principle. But, uh, but basically, they they said, uh, look, it was Sharia compliant back then when you when you stumped up, uh, but now it isn't, so therefore we don't have to repay it. Um, or rather, we will make other arrangements to repay it. Uh, it turns out on less favourable terms than, than, than the original Sukuk. So naturally, bondholders, Sukuk holders, uh, uh, the same thing in these circumstances, they weren't very happy about this, and uh, they sought enforcement of their claims to repayment. Uh, there were two more installments due this year. The court in Sharjah, which is one of the emirates of the UAE, said, uh, no, you can't enforce this until we reach a decision on whether this is Sharia compliance or not. So we're in kind of a, uh, you know, cleft stick situation at the moment. They, they, they can't uh, enforce until the court says whether they are Sharia compliance or not. And that won't happen until about uh, December. But what they said in their, uh, their explanation was that due to a changing interpretation that these were no longer Sharia compliance. And I think that that's what spooked people uh, because they, they had suddenly declared uh, the whole thing, you know, for, uh, in, in retrospective uh, to be no longer valid. And people who had taken out these sukuk thought, well, okay, if, 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 if the law has changed, people have every right to change their minds. The, you know, lawyers can change their opinion, interpretations can change. But surely there is a legal and moral argument that these repayments have to be met on the same terms. And that's why people are worried. You basically anticipated my next question. Actually, I have like a million <laughs> questions now based okay. on that explanation, but I'll sort of rattle off three quick ones and you can sort of pick and choose. The first is, so A, the company can do it, can the company do it unilaterally just to clear that uh, the bond or the, the Sukuk is no longer uh, Sharia compliant B, do they need to get a ruling from one of the same scholars that declared it Sharia compliant in the first place? And then finally, what's been the market reaction to the whole industry if there is a precedent set that at any moment a financial instrument that was deemed to be compliant uh, is suddenly just like, nope, we change our mind? Well, uh, well, that's what they did. Uh, uh, the, uh, the civil court, sorry, the uh, Sharia court in the UAE Emirates here, Sharjah, will decide whether that was the uh, correct procedure or not. Now, they obviously took advice, uh, both from uh, Islamic scholars and from lawyers who would have a heavy Sharia element to them. So they did it on advice. That's, that, that's the line. Number two was, um, just remind me again. Do they need to get an opinion from a scholar who uh, deemed it Sharia compliant in the first place? Well, we're a bit in the dark on this because they haven't really explained, you, you know, broken down the process uh, and, and they haven't really told us that. They said simply that it was a changing interpretation. Now, look, you know, maybe they have, have discovered something that was Sharia compliant in 2013 when they uh, uh, issued the bonds and, and which no longer is. But the answer is we don't really know. We're waiting to hear all that. Lots of this will come out uh, in court, in Sharjah, in Arabic. Um, uh, towards the end of the year. So, so we're not entirely certain. Um, now, in terms of uh, market reaction, you know, people have been worried um, uh, because this could happen to, you know, 
many others. Uh, it's, as you said, it's, it's the precedent setting which seems to be the issue. If this can be changed so arbitrarily, um, you know, then where does that leave all the other, you know, hundreds of billions, trillions worth of, of, of dollars worth of secoot debt that's out there in the world? So one of the solutions to this um, that people have been proposing, including uh, yourself in one of your recent columns, is to standardize some of the fundamental requirements of Sukuk's and Islamic finance. And I can see the benefits of doing that for sure. But then I think that Islam itself is a religion that is very open to interpretation. Yes, you have the Quran, but you also have the Hadiths, uh, you have Islamic scholars all issuing their own sets of advice. It's very open to interpretation. So how realistic is it to actually standardize yeah. Sharia finance? Yeah. Well, well I, don't, I don't think it is really, um, you know, to standardize it on a, on a global scale at all. The uh, the two big centers of uh, Islamic financial and economic activity are in Southeast Asia and here in the Gulf and the Middle East. Uh, Malaysia, in, in particular, has been the most developed uh, of, of the Islamic financial and uh, economic markets. And uh, uh, Kuala Lumpur has done a fair job of making itself the, uh, the Asian capital for uh, regulatory standardization Islamic matters and bonds in particular. Uh, the Middle East, on the other hand, however, even, even in Southeast Asia, the Indonesians do not have to recognize decisions of the Kuala Lumpur authorities, but they are relatively small, so it doesn't always matter. However, in the, in the Middle East, um, which arguably is a, a, a bigger market, potentially more assets here, um, and a bigger, well, a, a, a comparable comparable population, you, you would think that Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, and the UAE between them, those are the three leading Islamic uh, centers here in, in, in terms of finance, you would think that they between them would be able to get together and organize something called, called the Gulf Fatwa Authority, the Khaliji Fatwa Authority, or something like that. Um, so far, that has eluded them. Uh, uh, Bahrain seems to be the uh, the regionally recognized uh, center for regulation. Uh, the UAE, as part of its drive to be the capital of the Islamic economy, also attempted to put its unification of regulatory standards here. Saudi Arabia, which you would have thought had the sort of moral Islamic claim and being the biggest economy, you would have thought that they would have led the way, but they don't seem to have uh, as yet. So these, these three centers are pulling against each other and they have not managed to organize themselves into a uh, single unified unitary regulator it's it, it is difficult it is difficult do the different uh regions countries have fundamentally different objectives like what is the sort of where are the dividing lines why is it so difficult because they they have their own way of doing things uh, and i guess that they're there's a proprietary element to it. You know, they want to keep their own systems in place. They want to have their own regulatory standards. The comparison that, that has been made to me in the past is with halal food. Halal food has to adhere to certain minimum standards in preparation and storage, wherever it is in the Islamic world. But halal food in Kuala Lumpur will look and taste very different from halal food in uh, Saudi Arabia or, or Lebanon. 
so you know it's taste you know really you know it goes down to sort of global taste standards and you know similar kind of things apply in finance too uh, practices have have grown up over years that have been accepted as standard by the uh, uh, the people in Malaysia. Uh, different standards have pertained in Bahrain, and they have diverged, and and they don't want to have to pull them back. It's, you know, there is no, as Tracy said, that you know, uh, that there's an awful lot of interpretation in Islam, um, and you know, the uh, uh, the financial regulatory systems reflect that. So, Frank, when you talk to people on the ground here in Dubai, how much concern are they expressing over the stannic gas situation, and how do they see it actually playing out? Well, well they think that it can damage the Islamic economy, and and that it can it can damage uh, uh, Dubai's attempts to be the you know the center of the regional uh, uh, Islamic system. Now, how it plays out, uh, the court, I'm sure, will uh, be lobbied by. Islamic financial people in, in, in the course of the next few months, uh, different interpretations will be put. Uh, uh, the court, in its, uh, its Sharia wisdom, will decide. Um, I mean, there must be room for some element of compromise. I think, personally, if Dharma were to sweeten the terms of the replacement sukuk, mm. uh, uh, which they are offering, that's a fairly straightforward commercial decision by then. If they were to do that, then uh, you know we could be halfway there, and uh, the, the whole episode could, could be left behind. All right, fascinating conversation, Frank Kane. Really appreciate you coming on. I had read several uh, pieces about this, and I think I have a greater understanding now about what's going on than I had from any of those. So, really appreciate you uh, joining us this week on Odd Lots. Thanks a lot. So, Joe, one of the reasons I'm so interested in this whole saga, um, it's not just because I'm here in the Gulf. It's also because a lot of these arguments are being mirrored in other Western bond markets throughout the world. So, you know, you have these big movements for green bonds, for impact investing, and you're really seeing the same discussions. Like, should we standardize the requirements for something to be labeled a green bond? And what exactly are we trying to achieve through impact investing? And everyone has different interpretations of what that is. So a lot of what we're talking about when it comes to Islamic finance, you could extrapolate to some other hot new areas areas of the uh, financial industry. You know what it made me think about? And this is not meant to be alarmist or anything, but I was thinking about the role of the Islamic finance scholars issuing the approval of Sharia compliance and thinking about their, that similarity to the role of the ratings agencies pre-crisis. And then the idea that suddenly, you know, of course, in the U.S., suddenly a AAA isn't a AAA anymore. Suddenly a Sharia compliant uh, financial sukuk is no longer Sharia compliant anymore. So, you know, I don't, I have no reason to think it's going to spiral or anything the same way our situation did. But it did feel to me like sort of a, a slightly analogous situation. Yeah, I guess it's a totally unexpected development, right? You think something is triple, triple right. A, you think something is Sharia compliant, and then suddenly it isn't. It's not. Yeah. No, I really, uh, that was very interesting. All right, should we leave it for today? Let's leave it there. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. 
And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. You can also follow Frank Kane at Frank Kane Dubai. And you can follow our producer, Sarah Patterson, on Twitter at Sarah Pat with two T's. Thanks for listening. Thank you.